preface this morning by saying this is one of those, those Sundays coming in when you open up to where we're going to be in the Bible that at a cursory glance, I think you'll agree with me, there's probably not anything new that you're going to hear this morning. Uh, we're going to talk about this uh, danger of building bigger barns and storing treasures up for ourselves and our own kingdoms, pursuing our own comfort and security and identity and possessions and the call of Jesus to forsake those things and with it the anxiety that comes with those things uh, to live for his kingdom of peace and contentment and the storehouses and treasures uh, of heaven, putting our hopes there. Uh, with all of that, I basically just preached this morning's sermon in about 30 seconds. But with all of that, I'm going to give us up front this, um, this exhortation to not let these things get lost on us because this is one of those moments this morning where we're going to be pressed with the question of whether our confessional theology, that which we proclaim to believe, has really worked its way deep into the recesses of our being and become our functional theology in, in the midst of the everyday rhythms of life. Um, I've given this as an example before when we worked our way through the book of Jonah. Yes and amen, we were meant to, to get a grasp of the idea that God is sovereign over all things. Yes, he appoints great fish of the deep and the smallest of worms and scorching east winds. But with that, coming out of a study of a book like that, for the rest of our lives, we're meant to run to and embrace the truth and the hope of a sovereign God when our lives come unraveled. We're meant to come back to Jonah over and over and over again, and that's just one of 66 books of the Bible that we're meant to do that with. And so this morning presents us with a passage of Scripture that I think is going to test us in a sense uh, to wrestle with the question of whether or not that which we say we believe has really worked its way deep down into our hearts and the truth of the reality is we're probably very much like the dad in, in Mark's gospel account, I believe, help my unbelief. And so um, with that, I invite you to open up your Bible to Luke chapter 12. We'll be in verses 13 through 34. I'm going to pray for us real quick that the Lord would help us in our unbelief that we might walk out of this place with deeper peace and contentment and living for his eternal kingdom. So will you join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, I want to first acknowledge in gratitude that you've sent your Son that we might be brought into another kingdom, out of the kingdom of darkness and into your marvelous light, the domain of, of your glory and goodness and grace, Lord, that we might live for you, that we might even be able to store up treasures in heaven, Lord, that um, that there is a, a kingdom that will someday be consummated, Lord, that we who are in Christ will know the joys of forever and ever and ever. Lord, I pray that that would inform the way we live now as we open your word together. Holy Spirit, would you move, would you work in our hearts and our minds and our lives uh, that we might not walk out of here going, yep, better grasp of the Bible more intellectual ascent, but more than that, Lord, that we would be deeply transformed by the truth of your word, by this divine revelation that by your grace we get to sit with this morning. So Lord, would you do that great work in our hearts that we might walk out of here believing more? Would you help us to, to lay down our unbelief and, and that it would be ultimately for your glory and our joy that we would do so? In the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior and King, I pray. 
Amen. So picking up this morning's passage, this is the, the last stop on the Luke train before we hit the pause button for about five weeks here to jump into a series uh, on Advent coming up next Sunday. Uh, this auditorium will be adorned with the trappings of Christmas, and it's going to be amazing. You won't want to miss that. Uh, but for now, we jump into Luke chapter 12, and we'll come back around to this very same chapter Start of the new year. As we pick up this morning's passage, if you were around last Sunday, you may recall Jesus has just managed to draw this incredibly large crowd, so large that people are trampling one another. It's a mosh pit of sorts that's taking place here. And this is right after Jesus has pronounced woes on the scribes and Pharisees, mind you. Some incredibly heavy words on Jesus's part. It's in the midst of that chaotic scene that Jesus pulls his disciples aside, warning them that religious hypocrisy isn't the only kind of hypocrisy, that there's a hypocrisy that reveals itself when persecution comes, a hypocrisy that denies Jesus as the scribes and Pharisees have, yet for very different motivations. Jesus knows that that his disciples will soon face persecution just as he himself will, and so he exhorts them not to fear their persecutors, those who have the power to kill the body, but rather to have a right fear of the Lord, a reverence toward God that sees beyond this life to the life to come. And with that, a trust in the Lord who's sovereign over the lives of his children down to the very hairs on their heads, that they might have the courage to acknowledge Jesus before men no matter what it might cost them. It's in the midst of Jesus saying these things that Luke tells us, chapter 12, verse 13, someone in the crowd said to him, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. A man in the crowd speaks up, expressing concern for the way his father's inheritance has been handled. On the short end of the stick, this man, in his mind, now seeking the help of a, of a rabbi in settling the dispute in accordance with the Mosaic law, which in and of itself is a situation with which many of us might sympathize, particularly those of us who have a bent toward fairness and justice. However, Let's not forget that Jesus has just spoken of the persecution to come for those who would acknowledge him before others. A call to self-sacrifice, a call to to lay down one's rights, one's comfort and security for the sake of Christ. And yet here you have a man focused on his own rights, preoccupied with his own situation, his own comfort, his own security. Jesus said to him, verse 14, man, who made me a, a judge or arbitrator over you? Jesus was not a rabbi in the formal sense, not having gone through the official uh, rabbinical process of his day. And so he doesn't step in to render a verdict in accordance with this man's request. However, he does take the opportunity to proclaim something of the essence of the kingdom, a kingdom that promises greater gain than any worldly inheritance, and with that, the greatest loss for those who would embrace the kingdom of this world. Verse 15, he said to them, now he's talking to the crowd here, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. The great Puritan uh, Thomas Watson once described covetousness as an insatiable desire of getting the world. It's no respecter of persons, a danger to the haves and the have-nots. We all face the danger of being possessed by possessions. In the words of one scholar, the poor are tempted to want all the things they do not have, while the rich are tempted to want even more of what they do have. A quote I've shared before, uh, John D. Rockefeller was once asked, how much money is enough money? 
His response at one point, the richest man in the world, quote, just a little bit more. The love of money. It's not only a root of all kinds of evils, 1 Timothy 6, verse 10. It's a grasping at smoke. It's elusive. It's fleeting. For those of you who are around for the series in Ecclesiastes a few years back, Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 10. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. If we love money, we'll never be satisfied with money. The more we obtain, the more we'll want. And we'll never truly find ourselves happy in that empty chase, that grasping of smoke, vanity of vanities, the author of Ecclesiastes says. In our culture, and and most of us know this, money equals far more than currency. Money equals meaning. Money equals significance. What you have determines who you are. The world's divided into the haves and the have-nots, and nobody wants to be a have-not. So that Jesus' words, really at, at their core, they have everything to do with our identity. And not only our identity, but also our security. Right? The more we have, the safer we feel. The bigger the net, the less terrifying the fall. We buy into the lie that, that money and possessions can take away the emptiness, that they can give us meaning, significance, identity, that they can provide us with true and lasting security. Money is high up on the list of things that man deifies, you might say, which is why Jesus told more parables about money than any other topic. And speaking of, verse 16, we get one of those parables. Jesus says to the crowd, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. Here Jesus describes a man consumed with greed. No matter how much he possessed, he wanted more. A man man ungrateful to God, failing to acknowledge that without God's provision of rain, he would have no harvest. Now, that's a pretty easy one to see in in the farming world, right? That without God's rain, there would be no harvest. There would be nothing to put in the storehouses. But the reality is that's true for all of us. Apart from God's grace in our lives, we would have no provision. A man ungrateful to God, failing to acknowledge God's provision in his life. More than that, a man who was selfish, showing no indication of a willingness to care for others out of his abundance. My crops, my barns, my grain, my goods, my soul. See the language there? I, me, my, mine. Self-focused and delusional. He's even practicing what we try to do as a church. He's preaching something to himself. It just happens to be that it's not the gospel. I will say to my soul, soul. He believes himself to be secure, this man, having established enough in the storehouse to eat, drink, and be merry for years to come, all the while failing to consider that he might not live to see tomorrow. Verse 20, but God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? Malcolm Forbes once famously said, he who dies with the most toys wins. Here, Jesus declares by way of a parable, he who dies with the most toys dies and his toys become someone else's toys. The man in the parable having made plans for a day that he'd never come to see. And with that, leaving his many possessions behind, 
It's absolute folly to live that way, Jesus says. Again, many of us would say confessionally, yes and amen. I agree with you, Jesus. I believe that to be true. And yet the question is whether or not we functionally, at a heart level, embrace that truth that Jesus is bringing before us by way of a parable this morning. Do we believe that tomorrow is not promised? And do we then live for today in light of that reality for the sake of his kingdom? He says in verse 21, So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. He's like the man in the parable. The fool lives as though this life is all there is. As though his or her kingdom is the one kingdom worth building. Jesus calls for his followers not to lay up treasures for themselves, but rather to be rich toward God. What does that mean? What does that look like? Philip Ryken in his commentary uh, was helpful to me on this. He says, I am rich toward God when his glory is my highest goal, when his worship is my deepest joy, and when his fellowship is my greatest satisfaction. I am rich toward God when I offer all my abilities for his work without reserve. I am rich toward God when I take the time to serve people in need and give the first portion of everything I get to Christian ministry. I am rich toward God when I make the needs of the poor a priority in my financial giving and embrace a simple lifestyle that gives me more freedom for ministry. I am rich toward God, he says, when I decide there are some things I can live without so that I will have more to give to people who do not even have the gospel. I am rich toward God when I give and give until all I am and all I have is dedicated to his glory. Coming back to what Jesus said back in chapter nine, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Say this often, Christianity is not easy believism. I prayed a prayer back in the day and I'll now live for myself until my dying day with my ticket to heaven in hand. No, Jesus says, if you want to truly follow me, two things are required, self-denial and cross-bearing. In following Jesus, he gets to establish our dreams, our ambitions. He gets to wear the crown as the rightful king, and we get to be glad-hearted citizens of his good kingdom with our knees bent in glad submission. And according to the scriptures, that's the only way to win in the end. It's the only path to true eternal happiness. Every other hand is a losing hand, a path to eternal sorrow. Easier said than done, right? And Jesus knows that if we live that way, worry will inevitably come. How can I be sure that I'll have what I need if I give away more of what I have? If I embrace a lifestyle of sacrificial generosity for the glory of God, how can I be sure that my needs will be covered? It's why Luke goes on to tell us, verse 22, and he said to his disciples, therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. Jesus follows the parable of the rich man with an exhortation. Therefore, in light of the parable I've just shared, therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. Now, this is a tough one, the remainder of these verses, because Jesus is going to speak to the issue of anxiety. And for any of us who have experienced anxiety in life, we know that there's a complexity to this. 
That there's a lot to consider when you consider even that word and all that, that, that comes with that, that word. And so I don't want to trivialize anyone's life. If you've gone through anxiety, if you're going through anxiety right now, I don't want to minimize it. I don't want to diminish it. I don't want to make it less than what it is. At the same time, I do want to acknowledge that these are red letter words, that Jesus has something to say to the issue of anxiety, and we need to listen if we're truly citizens of his kingdom. We need to bow to these words as much as any other. And so Jesus does say, he says, there's a kind of anxiousness that reveals a heart attachment to earthly treasure. A kind of anxiousness that reveals a troublesome occupant on the throne of our hearts. A kind of anxiousness that Jesus equates with being of little faith, verse 28. A trust issue, a worship issue. And he's incredibly kind in in the way he, he unpacks it for us, right? He could have just stopped at verse 22, declaring that the appropriate response to the parable of the rich man is to trust God. End of story, end of sermon, But that's not what he does. He goes on to give us a list of reasons to trust our heavenly father. Verse 23, for life is more than food and the body more than clothing. Which I take to mean one of two things, either that the leveraging of our lives for the glory of God is bigger than these things. We exist simply not to survive, but to glorify. Or that if you're a child of God, the basic necessities of life can be taken from you, and yet you will someday put on immortality, eternal life, a resurrection body. Therefore, Jesus says, do not be anxious. He goes on, consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn, and yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? As Jesus said regarding the sparrows, going back to verses six and seven, you and I bear the image of God, the imago Dei, the crown and glory of God's creation. More than that, we're beneficiaries of his great work of redemption. If you're in Christ, recipients of his saving grace. Martin Luther once said, we have as many teachers and preachers as there are little birds in the air. I love that. Back in the spring, you may remember me sharing this story if you were around. We had a, a cardinal make a nest in a bush right outside of our breakfast nook. And every morning, we'd sit down for breakfast. We'd look. We'd see that cardinal sitting in the nest. And eventually, the eggs were hatched. And the, the mommy and the daddy cardinal would, would fly out into the woods behind our backyard. And each and every time, they would come back with food, provision. It was a reminder to us on the daily of who this God is. The birds, they were teaching us. They were preaching to us. Jesus says, if God doesn't forget about the most insignificant of birds, will he forget about you? Will he fail to take notice of you? Maybe you feel that way. That's a functional trust issue. If God cares for the birds of the air, will he not care for you? Has he not cared for you in Christ? So don't be anxious about your life. Verse 25. And which of you by being anxious can add a single hour to his span of life? If then you are not able to do as small a thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? I've said this before. Many of our worrisome, anxious thoughts, they function like a false prophet telling us that God's not good, that God's not sovereign, that God's not wise. If we just think about the situation a little bit more, maybe we can manipulate the outcome to be something different. 
Like I've said in the past, like a golfer contorting his or her body post-swing. What good does that do? It's not gonna change the path of the ball. It doesn't give us any more control of the situation when we live that way. Uh, in fact, it only has the power to make it more difficult. It robs us of the very hours of our lives that we've been given. We sit around worrying about that which is out of our control. Verse 27, he says, Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass which is alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? Isaiah chapter 40, God is intimately and sovereignly involved in clothing the grass that withers and the flower that fades. How much more will he intimately and sovereignly care for you, a member of his royal priesthood, his forever son, his forever daughter? So don't be anxious about your life. Verse 29, do not seek what you are to eat and what you're to drink, nor be worried for all the nations of the world seek after these things and your father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom and these things will be added to you. Going back to verse seven of this chapter, God knows things about you that you don't know about yourself, including the number of hairs on your head, the hundreds of thousands of hairs on the heads of every person in this auditorium collectively right now. God knows it. He's sovereign over your life. He knows what you need. He loves you with a reckless abandon. The beginning of the Lord's prayer, our father in heaven. The second part of that phrase in heaven, declaring that the earth is his footstool. He sovereignly rules over all things, including the circumstances of your life and mine. The first part of that phrase, our father declaring that this sovereign God loves us with a love beyond our wildest dreams. He knit you together in your mother's womb. He knows the end of your life from the beginning. He will give you everything you need in order to accomplish his purpose until the day that his purpose is fully accomplished in your life and he takes you home into the glory of his presence. Jesus says, verse 32, fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. To give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions, Jesus says. Give to the needy. Provide yourself with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. Fear not, little flock. Our oldest daughter, we named her Lanier. It's kind of a strange name. It means wool worker. Part of the reason that we gave her that name, the imagery there, is because it, it gives that picture of being with and among the sheep, being a part of the flock. There's something comforting in that imagery. You and I are God's flock. We're his sheep. It's his good pleasure to give us the kingdom, Jesus says, the promised inheritance for those who are in Christ, knowing God is our father and resting in the truth that, that we are his children. That's the way not only to true freedom and God-glorifying obedience, but also to a life of deeper security, deeper peace, deeper joy. The kind of security and peace that goes further than simply worrying less. That's not the aim. That aim is too small. The kind of security and peace, rather, that seeks to leverage what we have for the kingdom of heaven and her king. 
David Gooding in his commentary to store up your treasure on earth and it will inevitably pull your heart in the direction of earth. Store it in heaven and it will pull your heart and with it your goals, ambitions, and longings toward heaven. My prayer for us is that we would be a people whose hearts are pulled toward heaven. People who live lives of true contentment and peace are our knees bent in glad submission to the will of our heavenly father as we seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, a kingdom that will outlast and outshine the kingdom of this world, anything we could build here on earth for ourselves. Jesus goes on in closing out this morning's passage, verse 34, for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. For those of you who were around, think back on our study of Ecclesiastes where the author tells us that he applied his heart to search for meaning and happiness in the things of this world. When left to ponder the conclusion of his little experiment, the author of Ecclesiastes says, quote, I turned about and gave my heart up to despair. And so will we if we make it our aim to build kingdoms for ourselves, to lay for ourselves treasures on earth. D.A. Carson says, we must ask ourselves how important contemporary transient values will appear to us in 50 billion trillion millennia. It is a poor bargain which exchanges the eternal for the temporal, regardless of how much tinsel is used to make the temporal more attractive. We live in a world in which moths and rust destroy, a world in which things fall apart. We live in a world in which thieves break in and steal, in which uh, circumstances uh, can change everything in an instant. Not so with the storehouse of heaven, Jesus says, for those who lay up treasures in allegiance to his kingdom. How do we do that? How does a person store up treasures in heaven? Well, Jesus has alluded to it. Sell your possessions, give to the needy. Paul unpacks that further, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 17 through 19. He says, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. How does a person lay up treasures for himself or herself in heaven? By doing good, Paul says. By being rich in good works. By being generous and ready to share. It's an outworking of, of setting our hopes, not on the uncertainty of riches, but on God. For where your treasure is, Jesus says, there your heart will be also. Isn't the, the heart exactly what Jesus has been coming at from the very beginning? Our hearts can rest in God's wisdom, knowing that he's trustworthy in every situation. Our hearts can rest in God's goodness, trusting that he always and forever wants what's best for us. Our hearts can rest in God's sovereignty, believing that he's always and forever in control. There's an old nursery rhyme that, that goes like this. Said the raven to the sparrow, I should really like to know why these anxious human beings rush about and worry so. Said the sparrow to the raven, friend, I think that it must be they have no heavenly father such as cares for you and me. The birds preach to us, but we also preach to the birds. Is that the message that we're sending? 
Because the truth is we, we have a heavenly father who cares for us. The greatest display of his care in the sending of his son. Very famous passage of scripture. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. I've said this before and I'll say it again. Jesus didn't give a tithe of himself. He gave all of himself. He became poor so that by his poverty, Paul says, we might become rich. Taking on the form of a peasant is an act of sacrificial love. Setting aside the privilege of divine glory. That he might, and think about this, live a perfect life of contentment and sacrificial generosity in our place. Only then to bear the sins of our selfishness in his body on the tree. Counted selfish and covetous, covetous Jesus was so that we, the selfish and covetous, might be counted generous and content. That is unbelievable. Particularly if you're like me and just over the course of this past week, you've bought into the lie that it's about your kingdom. Christ died for that. If you're not a Christian, I would say this to you. Don't forsake the greatest treasure of all the great treasure of God himself, the riches of his eternal kingdom. Coming back to those sobering words of Jesus in uh, chapter nine, verses 23 through 25, he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me for whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Here it is. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? Christianity is about losing that, that we might gain, abandoning empty wells and bigger barns for the true fount of everlasting joy, joy in the storehouse of heaven. Again, it's the only way to win in the end. It's the only path to, to true, lasting happiness. If you're not a Christian, don't cling to the world only to lose your soul in the end. Repent of your sins and turn to Jesus and trust in him for salvation. And if you are a Christian, same thing. It's all about trust. Just maybe not for the first time. Trust is not a one-time thing in the life of the Christ follower. Most of us know that. The author of Hebrews says, uh, Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5, Keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Again, the, the more we have, the safer we feel. The, the bigger the net, the less terrifying the fall, right? The love of money ultimately revealing a lack of trust in God, a lack of trust in him for identity, for security. It's no way to live. That approach to life cannot and will not bring ultimate satisfaction and security. Rather than owning money, we find ourselves owned by money. Rather than owning possessions, we find ourselves owned by possessions. Only the gospel only the gospel addresses our struggles with identity and security. You're a child of God, identity. He will never leave you nor forsake you, security. Again, these are things that most of us, we confessionally know. We could repeat it to everyone around us. Do our hearts believe these things to be true? Right now, today. The apostle Paul could say, Philippians 4 not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. 
In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. You see the both and there? Paul's learned contentment not just in hunger or need, but he's learned how to be content in Christ in plenty and abundance. That's what most of us need to learn. Paul says, my contentment is not situational. It's not that if I have a little more, I'll be content. Contentment's not about having more. It's not that if I have a little less, I'll be content. Contentment's not about having less. So no matter what I have, Christ enables me to be satisfied. And if all I have is Christ, I have all I'll ever need. Jeremiah Burroughs in his work, The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment, he says, contentment is that sweet, inward, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. God, give me some of that. Yes and amen. I would ask us, and this is a today question for each and every one of us, is Jesus truly enough or is he simply a stepping stone to something greater? Contentment is born out of a functional trust in a sufficient Christ. Let me say that again. Contentment is born out of a functional trust in a sufficient Christ. And there will never be a day that we wake up to that we won't have to sit with that. And it's not just contentment that's on the line, but sacrificial generosity The gospel bringing us face to face with the the radical generosity of God toward us as recipients of so many blessings in Christ. What more motivation do we need in compelling us to give cheerfully and sacrificially than the riches of God's grace that have been lavished upon us in Jesus? Charles Spurgeon once said, Oh my Lord, let me not merely talk thus and pretend to despise earthly treasure when all the while I am hunting after it. But grant me grace to live above these things, never setting my heart upon them, nor caring whether I have them or have them not, but exercising all my energy in pleasing thee and in gaining those things which thou dost hold in esteem. Give me, here's what Spurgeon asked for, give me, I pray thee, the riches of thy grace that I may at last attain to the riches of thy glory through Christ Jesus. That's my prayer for us as a church. That we wouldn't set our hearts upon earthly treasure, but rather that we would exercise all of our energy in pleasing the Lord, concerned with the riches of his glory, the riches of his grace, a people of faith, trusting in our sovereign God, our wise God, our good God, our loving God. In the words of one commentator, the remedy for all our fearful worries is more faith in our faithful God. Lord, would you fill our hearts with faith that we might live for your kingdom and your glory.